Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Hi! My name's Susie, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be with you guys here today. Happy Father's Day to all of the dads here and online. And um, also, I just, on days like this, always feel compelled to just acknowledge and make space for the things that make this day complicated for some of us. Um, some of us have lost our fathers this year. Some of us have lost our fathers in the last few years, have strange relationships with our dads, all the things. Some of us want to be, some of you maybe, want to be dads. <laughs> um, but uh, it's always such a great day to celebrate and also acknowledge the, the reality of it for, for us. Okay, so we are um, approaching the end of the Upside Down Kingdom series that we've been in in the last three months. Next week will be the last week of it, and then we have some great things planned in July. But um, before we kind of land the plane next week, we find ourselves this week um, at an interesting place in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, and the, the place that we're going to kind of land with today, that we're going to camp on today, is this verse that's found in chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 12, and it's known as the Golden Rule. So here's what it says. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Now the golden rule is, it's not just exclusive to Christianity. I mean, this was, this was a saying in Jesus' time, and it's, it's a saying that has been said in many other religious traditions and, and faith and spirituality conversations, and it's been used in speeches from presidents and written in literature and all kinds of things. But what I'm, I'm willing to bet, maybe, today, is that like so much of the Sermon on the Mount, what we think this means is not what it actually means. Or at the very least, what our, our understanding of it is um, sort of limited, and there's a lot more to it than we've ever really given it um, the credit for. So before we get to that, though, I have to do a review of the whole thing. So I just want you to say, I just want to tell you that what Mike has done in three months, I'm going to do in like 10 minutes real quick. <laughs> so bear with me for the next 10 minutes. But then also, um, if you're kind of new with us, we really value questions here. And we think that, like, the person who's up here teaching doesn't have all the answers. So if you have a question, if you, if you haven't been here for the whole time, and you're kind of wondering, well, what did he mean? What, did, what does she mean when she says that? And what did he mean when he said that? Whatever. You can feel free to raise your hand and ask a question at any time. Or you can text your question in, and Sam will, will grab the mic and ask it. So, um, so, here, so here's our little review, okay? The interesting thing about this, the golden rule in 7 verse 12, is that it forms what is part of what's called an inclusio. An inclusio is a literary device that's basically two bookends, and what's in the middle of those two bookends are really important because the, what's in the middle explains what the bookends actually mean. So 
Chapter 7, verse 12, the golden rule is actually the second part of two bookends. The first bookend starts way back in chapter 17, after Jesus goes through the Beatitudes, and he, he gives the people, all the crowd that was there, he gives them an invitation to join him and to follow him, and he gives them a job description and a calling, and he, he, he says things like he describes them as people who are poor in spirit, meek, um, merciful, peacemakers, pure in heart, and he calls them things like salt and light. He tells them that they are to be salt in the earth and light into darkness. He gives them an identity and a job description, and he sort of describes what this community looks like, a community that has been called by Jesus and called to live around the person of Jesus. So he does that, and then he goes into the first bookend, which is found in 517, and it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill. So hold on to this bookend. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then you go to the, to the, to the second bookend, and everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, and this sums up the law and the prophets. Are you with me so far? Come on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, for context of the first bookend, I just want to read the whole thing in context, because here's the other thing about the Sermon on the Mount. The whole thing has been, over time, famous for being taken out of context, right? So if you've been here for the past three months, at some point, I'm sure there's been a, a place in the series where you've been like, I didn't think that that's what that meant, right? Because it's such, there's so many good sayings in here that it's really easy to take them out of their context and miss the whole point of the whole message that Jesus is trying to convey. So for this part in the context, it says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the, the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the first bookend, abolish and fulfill. That whole part, Abolish and Fulfill, right after that, he went into this series that we called the Antitheses. So if you remember, it was a few weeks of teaching where he says things like, you, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, don't even be angry. So he takes these verses, these, these laws that the Pharisees and the Sadducees kind of banked all their righteousness on and said, you've heard it said this, because this is how the Pharisees and Sadducees do it, but I tell you this. He takes a heavy command and, and partners it with a lighter command, don't even be angry, because he was calling people to a righteousness and a way of being that was even better and more, more um, embodying the spirit of God and the love of God than that of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the scribes and the Pharisees. The antitheses deepen and intensify and reveal the heart of God for his people with his commands. 
they invite us into this spiritual formation that goes beyond the goodness of the scribes and the Pharisees and into this life of love that Jesus invites us into. Then he goes into Matthew 6. And in Matthew 6, he describes the simple and hidden life to which disciples are called. So he uses phrases like this, like be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of other people. Don't announce your giving to other people. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Um, let your giving and praying be done in secret. Don't whine and make a big deal about your fasting. That's not actually what it says, but that's my understanding of it. And don't worry, seek first the kingdom. So chapters 5 and 6, they show us that in order to be a disciple, we get to see the world, the cosmos, the earth as belonging to God, and that we're a part of it, but our operating system is different than what we were used to before, different than what we came from. Our operating system as Jesus people is different because it's marked by the grace and love of Jesus. And then we get to partner with God and be interacting with the people that God has placed us with, with the context that he's placed us in, and we get to um, not, not initially go out with the, with the motivation to go out and change the world, but we get to be the object of Jesus's transformation. And we get to be, and we get invited into being part of this community that's being formed, becoming more like Jesus for the sake of others. And the byproduct of that is that the world around us changes. And that might be in small, faithful, simple ways. It may be in big ways. So when I was growing up, I became a Christian when I was in high school. And at the time, you know, when I was in high school and my, in my zealous years of being a Christian, I always heard the terms be in the world and not of the world and be set apart as something that kind of takes, takes Christians and makes them, the way I heard it, was better. And that's not what Jesus is saying. When he's inviting the people in the crowd to be set apart to become his disciples, he's inviting them to a different way of living that presents an alternative way of living for the world. An alternative way that represents him, that displays his love and his kindness and blessing to the world. So the disciples, when they, were, when they were set apart, their set apartness didn't give them any special privileges or rights. They weren't being told that they were better than anyone else or that they obtained any kind of special authority that entitled them to lord that authority over other people. There were differentiations, and there are differentiations between those who follow the way of Jesus and those who don't. And let's hope so anyway, and let's hope that those are good, because that's the goal. If we're presenting an alternate way of living, there's going to be differentiations. But the goal isn't to be liked or loved or hated by other people or to stand out. The goal is to live a life that ultimately and genuinely reveals the beauty of Jesus simply because we've tasted and seen his goodness by being in communion with him. So those delineations that, that mark a person who might be following Christ and one who's not, whatever those boundary lines look like in relationships with people, what, however obvious and apparent they may be, they are not impermeable. 
They're not fixed and they're not stuck. Disciples are not meant to judge and condemn. Our set-apartness, being called out and being different, isn't meant to exclude or create hostility between us and other people. Our set-apartness is meant to bring salt into the earth. It's meant to bring light into darkness. It's meant to bring proactive goodness, hope, kindness, and blessing into the world. So, when we approach chapter 7, Jesus goes off about how to negotiate that permeability, and he speaks to how we as humans attempt to manage and manipulate those usually closest to us, and also our neighbors maybe, and our workmates, and people who don't think and believe the same way we do, by either condemning or pushing out our good ideas onto them, or, and our good solutions, and our, and our good suggestions. So he, he addresses those things, and he, and he helps us renegotiate the way that we interact with people. So the first verse of chapter 7, it says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way, you judge others, and you will be judged. And with, this, with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. So we learn this word judgment, right? We learn that judgment is krino in, in Greek. I've heard, I've heard people use the word krino, like, oh, don't use your good krino, don't use your bad. Like, people have been using it in this community, and it's kind of funny. So the word krino is spelled K-R-I-N-O. It's the Greek word for judgment, and it means to distinguish, appraise, separate. So your bad krino would be the kind of judgment that leads to condemnation that separates people. And good krino would be discernment, which starts with introspection. It starts with discernment with ourselves first before we put that on to other people. One thing that I thought was super interesting in, in, as we've been studying this, remember that the Bible, it wasn't given, it wasn't written or recorded in chapter and verse the way that we have it in our hands, right? It, it didn't like originally come with different headings. And if you look at a bunch of different versions of Bibles put together, you'll see different headings and different versions. That's not how it was originally written. It was originally written as one long account. So this, this sermon was written as one long account that's strung together. So I think it's really interesting when you go back to chapter 6 at the very end when, um, when Jesus says, uh, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And then he says, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself, and each day has trouble of its own. I think it's super interesting that he goes from that to don't judge. Because, I mean, think about it. <laughs> Most of the time when we're judging someone, it's because we're worried about something, right? Like, just think about the last time you passed judgment on someone. I'm sure it was like three months ago. <laughs> dig deep, guys, dig deep. <laughs> but the last time you passed any kind of judgment or had any condemning thought, what was the fear or the worry behind it? Because usually we're worried about something or fearing something like losing something or, or our safety or our protection, for, maybe for ourselves or for our loved one, a concern that we have. Like when I pass judgment on, on people that are closest to me, it's always, almost always, because I'm afraid of something that they're doing and the outcome of what that something will be. 
So that doesn't really have a whole lot to do with this. I just thought it was interesting, and I thought I would share that with you. So he goes on, chapter 7, verse 3, and he talks about, as he's talking about judgment, don't judge others or you will be judged with the, with the measure that you use. It will be measured to you. And then he goes on and says, well, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? This is the bad crino, right? How can you say to your brother, let me take the, step, the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Here's the good crino, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It always starts with introspection. Discernment always starts with introspection, and it leads with humility. Until we've done some introspection and dealt with our own sin, it's not our place to judge other people in whatever they're doing. Then he goes on to say, like, don't push your good crino onto other people by saying, do not give dogs what's sacred. Do not throw to your, your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Don't push your good crino onto other people to straighten them out. Stop over-functioning. Stop over-functioning. And then he goes on to this, this part that we were in last week. And we're getting, we're getting to the park for today, I promise. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So we have to look at this, this verse, this particular saying of Jesus in the context in which we find it in. It's in the context of how we treat other people. Last week, some of us, our minds were blown when we heard ask, seek, and knock isn't initially about praying. It's about how humans interact with each other. We are to be people who ask for permission to give voice into someone's life, right? We are people who are meant to seek, to be curious. Um, the way to love people is to hold space for them and to be curious about their life, not to just come in with judgment and condemnation, right? The way to love people is to knock, to move towards action through tangible acts of service and loving people with good deeds, right? And then he moves into prayer, and he uses that language to move us into prayer and uses the great example of when a child asks their father or their mother what they need or what they want, they usually don't hold back. They're not shy, and then the father and mother get to decide how they're going to answer that request. They may give the child exactly what they're asking for, or if it's not good for the child, they may wait or give them something else or just say no because that's what's good for the child. These verses have been taken out of context in so many ways, mostly to teach in a prosperity kind of a way that whatever you pray and ask for, God's going to give it to you. That's not always true. Can I get an amen? Okay. Also, it sets us up for disappointment when God doesn't answer our prayer the way we want him to. 
Because the point of the passage, the point of the prayer, just like the point of our interactions with other people and the way that we care and love for other people is not about what we want and getting what we want. It's about the relationship. The point of the passage when it comes to prayer is about our relationship as children of the beloved Most High God. The point of the passage is our relationship with people is supposed to be grounded in love that's selfless and not after what we want to get out of the relationship or how we want that other person to change or be or to do or to act different. The point of the relationship is just displaying Christ's love to another person. So Jesus moves seamlessly from talking about how we interact with each other to how we interact with God because these two things are totally interdependent on each other. Ask for what you need. Seek out God's will. Be curious about who he is and what he's doing and his activity around you and how he's showing up in your world. And knock, move into action. I mean, how many times can you think of or maybe in your own life or in someone that you love who is asking God and praying to know and understand God's will, whether it's a job or a place to live or a relationship. Sometimes you don't actually discover the answer to that prayer. You don't hear from God what he, how he wants to answer until you actually take a step and move into something, right? Doors open and doors close. So when he says, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets, it doesn't say, do everything to others what you would have them do to you so that they will be nice to you and leave you alone. It doesn't say, do, every, do to others what you would have them do to you, and they will let you worship your God and pray to your God wherever and whenever you want. It doesn't say, do to others what you would have them do to you so that you can have the freedom that you deserve. It's not about what we get. It's about who we are. So, so the so is so what? So what? Or in some versions is therefore. Therefore in everything. What's the therefore, therefore? So here's the review of the review. <laughs> in everything. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Well, what's the everything? From your closest relationship that you have, your closest, most intimate relationship you have, to the love that you have or don't yet have of your neighbor. In everything. In your oaths, in your truth-telling, in your anger, in our acts of righteousness, in our judgment, in our discernment, in the way that we pray, in everything we are invited to do to others what we would have them do to us. And like I said, the golden rule is not exclusive to Christianity. And pretty much every major religion has a version of the golden rule. And here's, here's the part where, where I meant, like, what we, think, what we think it means may not be entirely what it actually means. Because listen to some of the different versions of it. Um, in rabbinic writings, in Greek philosophy, it's found in Hinduism, Buddhism, it's found in the Quran. 
the way that it's said in other traditions, the way other people have taken these words and used them, they are, they are said in a way that communicates the rule in the negative sense. So they advocate for not doing to others what you would not want them to do to you. Like that's a really subtle difference, but it's actually really profound when you keep in mind everything that Jesus has invited us into through the Sermon on the Mount. So for example, the Greek philosopher Isocrates wrote, do not do to others which, that which angers you when they do it to you. Do you hear the negativity in that? Did you hear? No? Okay. I'll give you another example. <laughs> Here's what Confucius said. Never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. Um, in the Apocrypha, there's a book called the Tobit, and it says, do to no one what you yourself hate. There's a Jewish rabbi named Hillel who summed up the Torah and said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. Buddha said, there's nothing dearer to man than himself, therefore, as it is the same thing that is dear to you and to others, hurt not others what pains yourself. And then the Quran says, woe to those who cheat, they demand a fair measure from others, but they do not give it themselves. So the differences in these sayings to that which Jesus is saying, it's subtle, but it's so significant. The negative versions, if you listen carefully, place the emphasis on us as human beings and are actually more self-serving and self-protecting. They're suggesting a way of being so that we can actually obtain good treatment for ourselves in return. The Jesus way is totally radical because it calls for a selfless and benevolent love that focuses on the object of one's love rather than oneself. So remember a few weeks back when we started talking about judgment, we went to the stations and we wrote on pieces of paper the people or groups and even some people named names of people that that we hold judgment towards. And then Mike asked us to write about that person that they are made in the image of God and are of unsurpassable worth, right? That is um, taking into account that us passing judgment on people is a very human thing to do. That's why Jesus spent so much time talking about it. It's natural for us to, to pass judgment and condemnation on people. But what Jesus does is he invites us to take that judgment and condemnation and just tell him about it and present it out to him and let him do the supernatural work of taking that and allowing us by his power and his spirit to pour blessing over people instead. Jesus' commandment to do to others as we would have them do to us invites us to be imitators of him. And rather than focusing on the negative, invites us to be people who are proactively initiating God's goodness and love and blessing and shalom into the earth. But it's hard. Because, and in some ways it feels more demanding, right? Because it's one thing not to steal or to hoard money, but it's a whole other thing to be extraordinarily generous and to part with what you have. It's one thing to, to, um, to just not be a jerk. It's a whole other thing to be abundantly kind and serving and, and giving of your time and your talent, right? 
It's one thing to not slander and go off on someone on social media, but it's a whole other thing to speak words of kindness and edification over somebody, especially when we don't agree with them or we don't really like them in the moment. So like the antitheses in chapter 5, the first book end, the negative versions of the golden rule simply call us to not sin, but the way of Jesus calls us to love. Somebody told me that they, um, they saw a headline t- this week of um, Post Malone talking about, he's com- I guess he's coming out of rehab, and someone, the interviewer was asking him a bunch of questions, and he said, I just am trying to live my life according to the golden rule. And he said, I'm just trying not to be a, I'm not going to say what he said, but you can fill in the blank. <laughs> And I came across an interesting um, blog post last week as well. It just happened to be something I was reading. And it was, it was written by some people who are doing some really good work right now. So it was meant well. It was a, um, it was a Christian perspective about a person who's a public figure who happens to be a Christian. And this person was choosing to stand by a conviction that he had. And, you know, there was a choice being made, and he opted to not make that choice because he was, had a conviction about that choice. As a result, you know, he got a lot of criticism, and, you know, there was talk about him being canceled, whatever that means now. So I was reading the account of it, and they had a lot of really good things to say, but I caught this phrase, and I want to read it to you, so listen really carefully. It says, It said, Christians aren't begging for special treatment. They're simply asking to be treated the way they treat others. Can you hear, can you hear the, um, it's a little off, right? I mean, it's kind of true, but it's also a little off, (laughs) right? Can you tell me, can anyone tell me why it might be a little off? Yeah, there's an expectation that you treating someone else a certain way, you're going to get something, right? How about the fact that sometimes people don't think the Christians are treating people really nicely? (laughs) There's that too. But, But like you said, it's kind of backwards. I mean, let's just assume, let's just assume that the Christians are treating everybody nicely. It's still backwards because in the Sermon on the Mount, What Jesus does is he invites us to come alongside him to be initiators of good in the world, regardless of the outcome, regardless of how we're being treated. That's why he says things like love your enemies. He's not saying love your enemies so that they're no longer your enemies. He's just saying love your enemies and leave the rest up to me. It's why he says turn the other cheek. It's why he says forgive. He doesn't ever give a reason that the reason why you should forgive is so that you can get forgiven back or that someone will eventually say they're sorry. No, he just simply says forgive. Be the initiator, the benevolent giver of goodness into the world. Keep your word. Turn the other cheek. Bless, 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 because he is the initiator of good in the world towards us. We love because he first loved us. That's why this is backwards. The goal isn't to get people to love us, to like us, and to respect us. The goal is to be formed into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. For this sums up the law and the prophets. 
When Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, in all that we see in chapters 5, 6, and 7 so far, we see Jesus taking what the law and the prophets said about living righteously and then intensifying it to a level of righteousness that comes from identifying in Jesus and revealing the heart of God that cannot be enjoyed apart from Jesus. Love is actually the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And when we practice these things, we're not only participating with God to bring goodness into the earth, we become formed in his image by our actions and our movements. And if we want to walk the way of Jesus, the invitation is to actually walk, to move, to keep the law, to keep the prophets by treating other people beneficently. Do you have any questions before I move on? Okay, I'm going to give you two great examples of this in real life. The first is there's a guy down in Texas. He's a pastor. His name is Bob Roberts. I don't know him personally, but there was a couple in the last service who do know him personally, so they vouched for him. But this guy is so fascinating to me. I've really enjoyed following him and listening to his podcasts because he's doing something that's super unique for our time. Um, he has formed real, authentic, genuine, normal friendships with imams in his community and rabbis in his community. Like they, they have meals together. They do ministry together. They actually do conferences together on how to live peaceably with one another. Um, but he he says that we have this opportunity, this unique open door in our time to live out the gospel with people of other faiths. And he says that if we really love religious freedom around the world, we have an opportunity to model it right here in our home. And, and what he says is traditionally, at least this is how I grew up, when we think about like um, our evangelism and winning people to Christ, we segregate and isolate ourselves from the very people that we're supposedly trying to win over. And he says that's not the way. And he's actually like the way that he approaches these relationships isn't even to change their minds about anything or to convert them. It's, it's genuinely to just show love to people. And he trusts God to work all of it out. Do you guys ever watch The, the Chosen, the show The Chosen? It's so great. My favorite line comes from um, this one part where, where they're fishing on the beach and, and they catch all the fish and, and it's overwhelming and, and the nets are full. And Peter asks Jesus, what do I do with all the fish? And he says, don't worry about it. Just gather them all and I'll sort them out later. That was my favorite part of the whole story. I mean, it was just so, so sweet. We focus so much on, sh on sorting everything out that we forget that that's, that's God's responsibility. So Bob Roberts, he's friends with all these people. And so last year there was this um, hostage situation that happened in a synagogue. And he was friends with the rabbi of that synagogue. He was at dinner and his friend that's the imam calls him and says, hey, have you heard what's happening? Our friend, the rabbi, is being held hostage in his synagogue. We need to get together and pray and see what we can do to help him. 
So it sounds like a joke, but in a mom, a rabbi, and a pastor all get together in a church, and they are praying together, and they're, they're praying the way that they normally pray together for the goodness of God to come and overwhelm the situation, for this man, their friend, to be rescued. And they all use their resources that they have, and they work together for the goodness of the people there. And he's not worried about sorting things out. He's just worried about love and care for the people around him. The other example I want to give to you actually happened just yesterday. So today's Juneteenth. Um, there were a couple of people in the last service that don't know what Juneteenth is, so I'll just tell you really quick. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed by Abraham Lincoln at the end of the Civil War to free slaves. But it was two and a half years later until many slaves were actually free because a guy named General Granger went to Galveston, Texas with his troops and by force freed the slaves. So that two and a half years later on June 19th is the day that, that the African American community celebrates the freedom um, that their ancestors obtained from slavery in this country. So it's now a national holiday. It's been a national holiday for two years, and there were, there were festivals and all kinds of events all over the country. And here in Franklin, we, a bunch of us went yesterday to the one in, in Franklin, and we got to serve and, and enjoy, and it was, it was really, really fun. It was, it was such a happy and festive and joyful day, really great music and food and people. It was awesome. And then, like, at some point in the middle of the day, a bunch of protesters showed up. And they were wearing masks with skeletons on them, and, all, and they had signs that said things that were um, not what the people that are celebrating Juneteenth would have in mind. Um, <clears throat> but it, was, it got really tense, and there were some people yelling back and forth, but thankfully it didn't escalate, and it didn't become a terrible, violent situation. But I have a friend who was there, and she told this story yesterday, last night on her Instagram, she shared her experience, but she actually practiced this. She was so angry and upset and taken back by these protesters, she started following them. And she started walking and praying and asking God to give her an opportunity to engage with them. She was angry and she was afraid because she was, she's a woman, she was by herself and she was afraid. So she's walking four blocks, she says, and she starts praying and asking God to help her put aside her anger so that love would come to the forefront of any conversation he would give her an opportunity to have. She was praying for wisdom, for clarity, for peace, and for courage. So she walks four blocks, finally gets the attention of one of the guys kind of at the end of, of their crowd. They were sticking close together. And he starts talking to her, and she starts talking to him, making conversation. They end up sitting on a bench, and she begins to practice asking questions, being curious. She didn't go off like, what the heck are you doing here? This, you know, I mean, she wasn't passing judgment on him for being there or protesting or anything. She just started asking him questions like, what are you hoping to accomplish today? Why did you choose this day of all days? Where are you from? Is this your hometown? She started asking him all kinds of questions, and it disarmed him to the point where he took off his mask, and they sat there and had a very peaceful conversation. Well, what she said was she's not sure that this had much of an impact on him, 
or what was happening. But she felt, because she is part of the church of Jesus, because she's a person who, who, who bears God's name, she has to be someone who initiates goodness in the world. And this was the way that she could do it. He invited her to walk with them, and she held a boundary and said, no, I'm not going to walk with you because I don't agree with what you're doing, but thank you for your time and thank you for talking with me. They had a lovely-ish exchange of two human beings interacting with each other. She totally golden ruled the guy. I mean, she treated him the way she would want to be treated. Bob Roberts shows friendship and kindness and gives space to other religious leaders because he would like that to be given to him as well. Not because, not for that reason, but because this is the way of Christ. Whether it's done for us or not done for us, this is the way of Christ. Whether that guy gave her the time of day or not, the way that she approached him and 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 asked and seeked and not sought, seeked, sought, <laughs> and knocked, that's the way of Christ. Taking initiative by bringing goodness into the world. I want to close with this. Later in Matthew, Jesus revisits some of these words again when the Pharisees and the Sadducees get together and they start to want to test him. There's a teacher of the law who asks Jesus, teacher, which of the commandments is the greatest in the law? And Jesus replies, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and prophets hang on the commandment of love. Love is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus makes explicit here in this passage what is implicit in our two bookends. Love of neighbor and love of God are interdependent. You cannot love God and hate people. You can't. In any moment that you are feeling hatred towards someone, you are not loving God. In any moment that I feel condemnation and judgment towards someone, I am not loving God. The law and the prophets are now to be seen through the life and ministry of Jesus, where God's love for us is embodied and clearly seen. And because of Jesus, we don't have to go far to get to God. He's come near to us and our neighbor. We get to walk with him, talk with him, ask for what we need, be honest, stay curious, stay curious about his movement among us, and we get to trust in him that all the answers to our prayers, the ones we asked for, the ones we didn't ask for, the ones that don't get answered the same way we thought they would, that they're for our good. It's messy and it's complicated, and we mess it up. I mess it up at least nine times a day. But we're invited to return to him and again and again come back to him and his ways. So today, as we sing and respond and we go to communion, the white pieces of paper are there again.
And I want to invite you to think really practically today. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask God, who, what, how can you proactively initiate the kindness and goodness and love of God this week? To who can you extend that to? It might be, um, it might be an act of forgiveness. It might be a note to someone. It might be reaching out, just texting someone that you haven't talked to in a long time that might have something between you and them. It might be bringing a meal to someone. It might be inviting someone over for dinner. But how can you proactively initiate the kindness and love of God to someone this week? And write it down along with any other prayers that you have, and and we will join you in that this week. And then after you write it down, receive the bread and the cup as the visible, tangible reminder that we get every week when we come together, that we get to take and receive and remember the way Jesus initiated towards us. God's initiation of love towards us, regardless of what we choose. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. God, sometimes when I um, when I teach or talk or say these things in the back of my mind I'm reminded of my unbelief there are times where all of this is really easy to believe most of the time it's in my head but sometimes it's really hard to make its way down to my heart and through my actions. And so God, for anyone else that feels that way in this room, we remember the operating system of grace. We remember that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. We remember that we love because you first loved us and that your love for us stands and remains no matter what that nothing can separate us from your love and so Lord as we as we sing these prayers to you today would you remind us of your great love and would you bring to mind the people in our lives that you would have us extend that towards this week maybe it's just one person Maybe it's a few people. But God, whatever the next right thing is in that relationship, God, I pray that you would bring it to mind for us and that you would give us courage, that you would give us wisdom, the words, the actions, whatever it takes, God, that we need to extend that love. And God, help us to trust that you are in that process, that you are in... um, that you're in those relationships, God, that you're at work um, in us and that you're also at work through us and around us. Thank you that you don't need our help, but you invite us into participating with you, God. What an honor that is. And I pray that you would help us sit with that today and, and let it just penetrate our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.